Good evening, good night, and I guess good morning to anyone who is uh, on the other side of the globe tuning in. Uh, thank you all for joining us on Twitter Spaces and those of you who are viewing this a little bit later on YouTube. Uh, thank you for checking this out. I am joined now by someone who I have listened to and studied for years now. Uh, and many of you in the audience, many of you guys watching should be familiar with his work. Preston Pish, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to do this. So I guess from the beginning, because so many different people use you as sort of, sort of a reference point of how they started going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and started asking certain questions. Um, I wanted to ask, though, when you first learned about Bitcoin, what was your initial instinct? Were you receptive or were you skeptical? I, if I have to be honest, I, I think it was actually more receptive than I probably should have been. <laughs> and I think some of that was just because I was in desperate search of finding something that was going to actually solve the disaster that I kind of thought was afoot from the 2008 crisis. And, and, the res and more importantly, the response or lack thereof to uh, normalizing policy around the response, like all the policy to me was just like, Hey, this is insane. Like there's no way this solves anything by manipulating uh, the markets for this long. And this was like back in, you know, 15, which was uh, seven years after the 2008 crisis. So at that point I was like desperately searching for, how is this thing going to resolve itself? And so then whenever, um, I learned about Bitcoin and I started saying, what the heck is this? And, and realizing that it was a digital version of gold that was decentralized and nobody actually controlled it. I was, I was just like immediately like, oh my God, this is, this is how this is going to potentially resolve itself. Um, because you can't manipulate it. Right. The, the solution was you have to have some type of forced way to stop the manipulation. And so immediately I, I like clung to it and I, I would argue I was probably way more comfortable in, in my initial buy was, you know, not aggressive. It was, Hey, like this ha potentially has a huge amount of upside. So it's a really asymmetric position. So yeah, let's just buy it. Let's just see what happens. And then, you know, I can kind of learn more about it as, as I go. And uh, yeah, so I was very open to it, but it was, it was all because of my opinions on like how broke <laughs> the traditional markets were that I think kind of made me so comfortable just willing to try out anything or kind of dig deeper into something that that was there before I even really fully understood what it was that I was buying from a technical standpoint. Was in this process though, were you a gold buff at all? Was that something that was even being considered by you? Yeah. Yeah. So I was and it was really studying Dalio that uh, changed my positioning or my my opinion on gold uh, in general. Because obviously, as a, as a hardcore Buffett and Munger fan, um, they speak very ill of gold and how worthless it is. And Dalio had a had a very different opinion and a different approach on it, and it all wrapped up into his opinion that currencies fail. And uh, depending on where you're at in this larger debt cycle. Um, that you might want to own uh, quite a bit of it in your portfolio for that, for that reason. So it was really, I would not be a Bitcoiner without Ray Dalio. I can tell you that just right now, like <laughs> it was just, 
Uh, you were you were Bitcoiner years before Ray Dalio even came into the picture, though. <laughs> but it was his principles. It was it was his framework for me that uh, just made it really obvious that that what's taking place has to uh, express itself into a new sound money system. Mm. What what does that sound money system look like in order for it to all resolve itself? Because you need a debt jubilee. Like at the end of the day, you have to go through. And people don't, you know, most people don't want to go through one, even though I think in a way it's very beneficial for, for a lot of people that are, uh, in the, in the market or just, you know, the population at, at large, it's, it's very beneficial because of the ones that are most indebted in that old currency, get absolute relief from it with the new currency that, that replaces it. So, and, and you need that to take place in order to actually provide a real reset. It's, it's hilarious to me when you look at the WEF and you look at like all these, you know, they call themselves elites and they, they, it's literally like the slogan at Davos is the, the great reset. But every, every single thing that they're talking about is basically how to prevent the great reset, right? It's, it's, hey, let's do central bank digital currencies, which will continue to debase just like the, the existing fiat currency. But we get this added benefit of, of being able to survey and make the money even more permission than it already is right now, right? That does not provide a reset. If anything, that provides a quadrupling down of the existing policies that got us to where we're at. Um. And I think it's it's just like peak peak hubris to think that that what they're talking about is going to provide a reset. It's going to provide nothing of the sort. It's going to provide a reset because you're going to have you're going to have forced people into a state of demand for chaos and and uprooting that that system is what is what they're really doing. I want to ask one more question before we really dive into the Bitcoin of it all. And that is sort of your value investing approach. Um, I mean, you've even said it just now about how uh, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, their strategy has led you to some of the things that you invest in now. They also very famously and loudly like to call Bitcoin rat poison. I don't view Bitcoin as any sort of possible value investing strategy one of my least favorite things actually to do with Bitcoin is continuously buying on these dips. It goes against every instinct I ever was taught. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about like how you broke that, because I feel like that is a part of going from traditional finance investing to investing in Bitcoin for the long term. So I would start off by saying that one of the reasons why I think you have people like Buffett who uh, his his approach is to ignore macro. He's been saying that for years um, in that he's just looking at the micro and he's making decisions based off that micro. And even if the Fed came to him and said how many hikes they were going to do or not do, it would not influence how he's making decisions at all. At least that's what he proclaims, right? When you invest like that um, and you're looking at this thing like Bitcoin and you're looking at this disruption that could potentially play out, what he really at the heart of value investing is this idea that you're looking for order in the market. You're looking for uh, you're looking for opportunities of dislocation in the market. But what he's really trying to understand is is I want to find a stable company that has like these free cash flows that are really smooth and 
They've got this deep competitive mode, so nobody's going to disrupt that. There's order to to the competitiveness of this company, and I want to I want to calculate what I think that's worth versus all these other things in the marketplace. And so he's seeking he's seeking order at a micro level, um, and I think when you look at this in particular, this is just like this is chaos to the existing traditional markets. And so when he calls it rat poison, there's probably some of this rooted into his entire strategy of what he's comfortable doing to, to invest the way that he invests. And that's probably why he refers to it as, is that when I look at like the way I, I invest and, and, you know, I'm, I, I consider myself extremely young relative to those types of people. My approach is just molded through conversations and through the research that I've done, uh, creating content of these just powerhouses of economic thinking. And so going, uh, help me out a little bit with your question. Cause I got a little bit off on a tangent there. I want to describe why I think Buffett is, is calling it that and why he's doing that. But you, it was much more focused towards, I think a little bit of economic calculation or something like yeah, that. Like how, how is a trained value investor? Did you sort yeah. of change that mentality yeah. when approaching Bitcoin? Yeah. So it was, it was easier for me to change the thought process because fundamentally I was of the opinion that the currency was, was broke. And that the manipulation that was happening in the market was, was making it not impossible, but very difficult to be a value investor, right? That a fundamental assumption, and, I, and I've said this on you know, podcasts here and there throughout the years, but a fundamental assumption that every value investor has to have is that they're dealing with a stable or somewhat sound currency in order to perform economic calculation. If you don't have that, and this took me a while to figure out, um, but I think once I figured out, I was like, how can I possibly be performing economic calculation and outperform somebody who's, who's a momentum-based uh, investor in a market where the, the ruler that I'm trying to use in order to, to measure what this thing's worth is constantly changing like I'm in Alice in Wonderland. And once I came to that realization, mixed with some other ideas of like, hey, I, I really think that we're going to move to a sound money policy. What does that look like? How is it implemented in a, in a way that's forced upon the globe? Because that was the other thing that I really toyed with that I struggled with. How can, you know, if, if one entity, and when I say entity, I'm, I'm talking about a government or a country. If one country is not playing by the rules and they're manipulating the market, but everybody else is playing by the rules and, and playing fairly, that one that one country is going to pay the price in some type of systematic meltdown at, at some point in time. But what happens, and this is the question I was asking myself through, you know, you know, back in 2014, 2015, what if everybody is equally lying and, and manipulating their market collectively against each other? How will that ever resolve itself? And I'm telling you, I toyed with this question. I mean, I would, I would literally, like, I know this sounds crazy. I would literally lay down at night and I would just sit there and think like, how, how would this resolve itself if everybody's cheating? It's almost like watching a hundred meter sprint and every single person there is doing something to cheat. Like who's the winner and, and how does it ever resolve itself if they have no, if there's no ref or somebody there that's saying you cheated and, and calling them out, right? 
Yeah. So back to how, how does a value investor look at that? I'm, I'm looking at it and saying, I can't win with exercising this approach if everybody's cheating and manipulating the, the, uh, the ruler. <laughs> and so that it, it, it helped me kind of, uh, evolve and, and, and move away from that strategy. Now, that strategy is going to come back in the favor. And I've talked about that, you know, on different shows. I, I think that strategy will come back into favor. I think we're way far away from that, but like anything, it comes in a cycle, it comes and goes. And as, as you start getting sound money, uh, a framework back in place and you get more stability in the market, um, boy, oh boy, there's going to be some big opportunities for people that understand that approach to valuation and, and finding things that have a good competitive mode that are, you know, that, that have good free cash flows. It, it sounds to a degree like you did, uh, you went off to answer the age old question that every Bitcoiner must at some point answer for themselves, which is what actually is money and what, yeah. like, what are sort of these properties of money? Um, I'm curious because you, unlike some of these traditional value investors that you name, have some somewhat of a more open mind towards technology, disruptive tech, and disruptive businesses. Um, what was what were some of the first things that clued you in on this is the type of stuff or these are the type of investments that do make life changing money? Uh, the the numbers right off the bat just made a ton of sense because I you know I'm looking at the market cap and I want to say back then. Was it like five billion? I think the the market cap on Bitcoin is like five billion dollars or like ten billion dollars. It was really low, and I'm saying, okay, well, if this would actually solve this disaster of a global economy that we're in and the total manipulation of fixed income, uh, we're talking trillions and trillions of dollars. Like the number back then was like this thing could go to ten trillion. <laughs> it was like that is a really big number compared to. 5 billion. And, uh, and so just looking at it in a very simple context. And, you know, when I, when I started initially talking about it and I wasn't real open about it cause it was pretty taboo back then, especially as a value investor, uh, Warren Buffett in person, right. Um, very taboo. And when, um, I first started talking about it, the, the, very first thing that anybody will say to you is, well, how do you calculate the intrinsic value on something like that? Right. And my response was really simple. Well, you know, I think something like this could be the equivalent of gold, which is a 10 trillion market cap. It's 5 billion or whatever it was back then. Uh, therefore, I think that there's enormous value. And well, how, how long is it going to take to, to convince enough people? And that's the other thing that they love this. How many people are you going to have to convince to to uh, buy it in order for you to sell it at that price. The, the way I was looking at it back then, it was always like, well, I don't think we're really going to have to convince anybody. I think all the convincing is going to continue to materialize itself from the total mutilation of <laughs> the, the alternative. Alternative. I think it's, it's like a, a, a magnet that's got a positive versus a, a you know, another positive, And it's just like literally pushing it away uh, from uh, people using it and trusting it. I mean, it, it, when you're talking about currencies, obviously it all comes to trust. And so I just, I felt like the trust was going to continue to get eroded in, in the other currencies that existed. And so that would just kind of take care of the timeline. 
you help make my job very easy now to help sort of transition to really focusing on Bitcoin right now. Um, it needs no introduction on the global stage. We've seen so many case studies and examples in real time from Canadians losing access to their bank accounts, the ongoing conflicts over in Russia and Ukraine, countless other examples continue to percolate almost on a daily basis as to the different use cases of Bitcoin. Uh, I'd love your just broader thoughts on some of these maybe less thought about use cases, the, the financial freedoms, the fact that the money doesn't get debased, that we know very well. Um, the anti-censorship, the decentralized components of Bitcoin, though, seem to really be the focus of the conversation that's being pushed forward. I'd love your thoughts on just what this could mean for the global financial markets. I think right now you got something on full display, which is the dollar is being weaponized. And, and, you know, if I was going to talk about intentions, I think it's being weaponized because we, we don't want to have World War III. I don't think anybody wants World War III. At least any sane person doesn't want World War III. Uh, they don't want nuclear warfare. And I think that when you look at the U.S.'s response, um, it's, it's a response where they're absolutely weaponizing the dollar because they want to avoid that outcome by doing anything from a military, physical, kinetic type way, right? But, the, but why are we here right now is really the kind of question that, that you have to really kind of go a layer deeper and think from a first principles. We've arrived here because uh, the game, the, the economic game is not fair. Um, the reason it's not fair is because it's been manipulated very little at first, and then it's compounded, that manipulation compounds on itself. And then you get to a point where you just have a total failure of the currency. And now you have, and when you're talking about the petrodollar system and you look at who are the actors that are upset, right? It's the actors that are doing what, what I would refer to as proof of work for the production of commodities. And they're tired of going up against the money printer go burr. And they don't think it's fair. And, um, and I'm not trying to justify any of these actions. Uh, I'm just trying to frame it in a, in a way of like, why are we at this critical moment in time where you have a person who invaded another country and, and is basically saying, you're going to do nothing about this, and I know you're going to do nothing about this, and therefore I'm going to take this, and I'm going to force you to pay with something other than dollars. Like, There's a reason all of that is taking place because of the the end of what I would call, uh, uh, my opinion is that you're, you're at the tail end of this global reserve status. And it, that's not me saying that that's, that's Dahlia, that's Stan Druckenmiller. It's all these, these really uh, profound macroeconomic thinkers that are coming out and saying, this is, this is a transition point. Um, and if you're not paying attention, you might want to start paying attention. And if you don't think commodity prices are going to go up at a point like this, they are, the reaction is you have this weaponization of the existing uh, currency system. And what does that do? So when you weaponize that, what you're actually doing is you're, you're eroding the trust that was already there, but you're amplifying it. You're amplifying that distrust because now I just clawed away all of those uh, sovereign res reserves that <laughs> were worked for very, very hard in order to, you know, you got savings, companies have treasuries, governments have uh, reserves. Uh, it's all the same thing. It's a bunch of work that's been stored into, uh, you know, the the currency, money, whatever you want to refer to it as. 
And if somebody can just say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to type a couple keys. I'm going to make all those go away. And I don't care what type of work you did and sweat labor you performed in order to proof of work to, to do those things. I'm just going to take them from you. And the more, the more times you exercise that, the more you erode the trust, which is driving somebody, the, the, the world to really kind of look for something that, that can't, that that action can't be performed against. In our present system, is eroding that trust as simple as us printing more money? Or is it us being aggressive towards another nation? I think it's all the above. Depending on who the person is, they're going to view it optically different because we're all wired different. Um, but for one person, the privacy is, is paramount. For another person, like me, for example, I'm highly polarized by what I know about fixed income. And I'm looking at this and saying, this is rigged. <laughs> and the, the equity that's constructed on top of that fixed income yields is rigged if that's rigged. <laughs> and so, so I come at it with that lens. And so then you have, you have all these people that view it from different vantage points. You have people that don't even understand finance, don't even understand Bitcoin or any of it that are working two jobs, getting paid uh, you know, a very low salary. They can't afford their rent. They understand what's going on, but they understand it from a different site picture and, and they might not be able to quantify it in a way and, and point to that's the root cause. They just know something's wrong and it's broke and you don't need an economics degree or a business degree or anything, any degree to be able to identify that right now. And anyone who just does their own grocery shopping or fills up their gas tank can tell you over the last six months alone, it's been a, a nightmare to say the least. Uh, and at least we have the privilege of being here in America where while we feel it, we are able to, I think, absorb some of it in a degree where many of the rest of the, much of the rest of the world is not able to. Um, I want to take a moment though, to talk to you about the petrodollar system that we've been living under. You make mention that, you know, there are certain actions being made around the world right now to go against this system. We had just today, Vladimir Putin announcing, we'll accept gold. We'll, we might even accept Bitcoin. Who knows? You had Saudi Arabia last week saying, we're, we're going to introduce the petro you want. Um, this is reminiscent, and I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist at all, of in 2000 when Saddam Hussein and Vladimir Putin introduced the petro-euro. And we don't need too much to read into what happened next in, in the rest of the 2000s. Um, to me, it was a very clear signal that the U.S. wants to protect its global reserve status, whatever they need to do. Um, do you fear or worry that there is going to be some sort of backlash on, uh, towards or directed to some of these countries that are trying to break off of the petrodollar system right now? I think you're already seeing that, that response. Um, and I think it's concerning uh, for any type of policymaker that, that has the dollar as their you know, reserve or has, has had that luxury of having that network effect at their disposal for their jurisdiction. So the transition is is difficult is, is most difficult for the ones that had the largest advantage in the way that the the prior system worked and there's strengths and weaknesses in every jurisdiction uh that can be found just some have way more strengths than weaknesses and vice versa so when we think about this this system transitioning uh to a new sound money the ones that are going to benefit the most are probably the ones who were victims of the, of the prior system the most and vice versa. 
Um, that's not a guarantee. That's more of a, a net macro thesis, right? Where I think that that you would have one-offs from that idea or that thesis is depending on the leader in charge and and the amount of critical thinking that they have to understand the new, the new system and how much influence they can actually provide to their staff and to the bodies that actually are able to implement a shift and a change in uh, monetary policy and the, the treasury uh, of those jurisdictions. So when you do a, a deep analysis of that, of every single country around the world, you're going to come up with different opinions as to the health of all those things that I just described in order for, for that jurisdiction to really kind of benefit from this or to be a victim of this change. But one way or another, Bitcoin does not care, <laughs> right? It's just, it's just math and it's just crunching its math. And it just, it, it has no opinion. It has no, uh, <laughs> I think you know what I mean. No, absolutely. And uh, I would re be remiss to not make a quick mention of what uh, the, our boss over at Bitcoin, our BTC Inc., Bitcoin Magazine, joked about the Bitcoin conference, which is coming up in about two weeks. Preston will be speaking there. If you guys are listening over on Twitter spaces, use code YTMAG to get 10% off of your conference tickets. Um, but David Bailey himself called the Bitcoin conference, it's a math conference. That's all this is. Math doesn't lie to us. Um, what you've described to me sounds very similar to essentially the opposite of Austrian economics, where the further you are from the money printer, or not necessarily the opposite, but the opposite theory of it, where when you are furthest from the money printer, you have not benefited and you have been most hurt mm -hmm. by this system. So you're mm -hmm. more incentivized to go out and chase this new system. Enter a country like El Salvador. It's no wonder it it doesn't take a genius who's paying attention to really understand why uh, global organizations are coming down and condemning the actions of El Salvador. At a certain point, are there is there almost in your mind too many adversarial countries or nations that would adopt Bitcoin to make it almost like this war against Bitcoin with those who have benefited from the fiat system? maybe not physically going up in arms, but monetarily speaking, fighting against this new regime that is trying to take over and supersede. I think that could happen. And I think going back to what I said earlier, it really comes down to the leadership and the, uh, the access to that they have in order to inform and educate, because this is an education issue, right? The people who don't understand this are the ones that don't understand what's why the transition's happening, how, like, how it's going to evolve to, a, to the soundest money and one that can't be manipulated. Um, and then just not coming to the, to the realization of tomorrow it's going to rain. You can go into your house and cry and whine about that it's going to rain and how you can't do anything, right? Or you can say, you know what? It's going to rain tomorrow. I'm going to put a rain jacket on. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to get wet, but I'm going to crush it. Even though it's raining, I'm going to crush it just like if the sun was out, right? That latter person who's, who's a leader and actually has the influence to shape the, uh, the understanding, to educate, and actually can, can implement policy and get things across the finish line in, in whatever jurisdiction, 
the, the person with the latter attitude, that country is going to crush it, right? They, they are going to transition. Now that they might have some setbacks, maybe they could run faster when it's sunny out than with all their rain gear on. So they're not running as fast, but they're doing a whole hell of a lot better than going in and into their room and crying because it's raining outside <laughs> and you're going to have, you're going to have a whole array of that activity from a macro government level. You're going to have the ones that, that kick and scream and say, I can't believe it's going to rain. We're victims. We're victims. We can't do anything now. We got to shut this. We got to somehow cancel the rain. You're going to have those leaders and you're going to have those people in charge of, of certain jurisdictions. I pray I'm not in one. And I don't think that we're at a point now where we even know which ones we're in. And uh, yeah. I don't keep to, I don't mean to keep asking speculative questions, but I, I have to ask this because I'm of the notion that at a certain point, those of us who are going to really understand Bitcoin will have figured it out. And the rest of the world is just going to sort of have to absorb or accept whatever the new Bitcoin standard is in their region. Um, can you maybe talk, I don't know if this is something that you agree with or not, but could you talk to what that could look like as far as individual citizens rather than the actual state or leadership? Yeah. Well, I think for, for most people around the world today, um, and this might be a little crude for me to describe it this way, but I think everybody's basically a prisoner. They're in debt up to their eyeballs. I mean, when you have no control over what it is that you're doing, that's, that's the epitome of being a, a prisoner or a slave to a system. And when we look at the typical person, they're in debt up to their eyeballs. They've got so much student loan debt. They've been convinced that they've got to go to some college and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get an education, to, to just try to compete, to make more, or have some type of network to, to make more in the future. But they get so indebted that for most of them, they'll, they'll never really kind of get themselves out of that hole, um, let alone then going and buying a house. So when you go through this, this currency collapse and you go through a debt jubilee, because that's what this effectively becomes, this becomes a debt jubilee. For that person, all of their debts are denominated in said fiat currency. And so they'll pay that back. And if you think that that said fiat currency isn't going to hyperinflate against, and this is important that I say this, against Bitcoin, I think you're crazy. Um, I think that that's just uh, somewhat obvious at this point, especially with what we're seeing happening in the world right now. Now, as what the time frame is on that, I can't, I can't answer that for you. But I can say this, if you've got a 30-year loan that's fixed at 2% fiat, denominated in fiat, and uh, you only got 10% down or 20% down on the house, I think a whole lot of that chunk of that bill that's due is going to be um, way easier to pay back than a lot of people might realize, especially if, the, if, if they start getting paid in a Bitcoin standard kind of way, which I think most people will start demanding that at a certain point. Uh, so that's, that's an important consideration. That's an important thing for people to understand because when they're looking at this, they're saying, oh my God, this is going to be devastating. And it, and it, it Make no mistake about it. There's going to be a lot of businesses that have been have been totally propped up by this zombie, uh, these policies to keep the zombies companies alive. And so, for people that maybe don't have a very specialized skill set, that's going to be harder to bridge that transition because a lot of those companies are going to fail. 
um, and then they're going to be out of work. But uh, for the people that are able to stay employed and start to receive, or maybe they're still getting paid in fiat and they immediately convert it into, into Bitcoin and they're, and that's going to be how it'll start off. And then it'll transition eventually to either you pay me in Bitcoin or I'm not working here. Um, but uh, that's how the, that's how the quote unquote debt Jubilee, in my opinion, will play out. And that's going to play out for a majority of participants around the world because they're all in debt up to their eyeballs. I, uh, I was sneakily trying to find this chart that I think you tweeted out years ago um, that speaks to this, where you took the S&P 500 and showed us sort of the chart since the recession. And then after that, you also showed it denominated logarithmically against Bitcoin denominated in Bitcoin instead of the US dollar. And you see, instead of up and to the right, which is the way the stock market was designed to go, we're actually going down and to the right. Um, to speak to that point, and I do want to now sort of flip the conversation to these the public markets, because pretty much since November, uh, I believe it was November 9th, Bitcoin hit an all-time high, the NASDAQ and S&P followed the day after. Both of these are all three, NASDAQ, S&P, and Bitcoin have been in a steady decline ever since. I believe the last number I saw, the correlation was about 92%. Um, talk to me a little bit about why you think this correlation is happening in the markets and Bitcoin. Yeah, I think this one's a little bit easier. Um, when you looked at that correlation years ago in Bitcoin, it wasn't there. But as of recently, ever since it got like over a market cap on Bitcoin of probably 700 billion, half a half a trillion uh, and higher, you started to really see a lot of correlation between Bitcoin and, and the traditional markets. Um, now, the magnitude of that correlation is is quite different <laughs> as far as like, you know, Bitcoin might go up 3% as the S&P is up a half a percent and, and vice versa on the way down. Um, so the reason why I think that's happening is because what we're really seeing that's driving the train here is the dollar is the fiat currency. And everything else is just a reflection of the perturbations that you have happening in the fiat currency. And when you look at the market cap size of the fiat currency, it's just, it's ungodly and relative to these other Bitcoin or the S&P or um, equities in general. The, the two massive markets or the, the really where all that fiat really resides is in the fixed income market and in derivatives. When, when a person understands, and so the derivatives are, are market neutral uh, as far as a long and a short there. Um, so where, where is it really residing? It's really residing in the fixed income space and in, in the whole debt market, the bond market. And so if we start to see inflation persistently higher than the yields that you have in fixed income, and if the market starts to believe that inflation is never going to drop below those yields that you're having in the fixed income market, uh, that fixed income market's going to try to sell off to at least come to parity of the inflation rate. And so we're seeing that right now. And this is why I keep talking about the negative spread in fixed income. When you look at the sheer size of this market, like uh, Greg Foss will tell you it's, it's a $300 trillion market cap. So if, if it sells off uh, and you go from a 1% yield to a 2% yield, let me tell you, that's a whole lot of trillions <laughs> that are that are selling off and they're going somewhere, right? They, they can, and this is this is a hard concept for a lot of people to understand, I, th I think, that maybe aren't intimately familiar with markets. When 
when that sells off, it can be from one of two things. It could be a sell-off and a transition into something else, uh, equities, Bitcoin, whatever. I think you have a little bit of that happening just this past week where the fixed income market was selling off quite aggressively and you actually saw a, a pretty substantial jump in equities. And so what I think was happening there is you were seeing a, the transition of a lot of that a lot of that buying power and capital coming out of fixed income and it was going straight into equities and Bitcoin. As the, as the cycle intensifies and, you, and it really starts to sell off, you start to get impairment. So not only is the buying power transitioning into some other asset, but when it really starts going, you get uh, the impairment of the promise because that's a promise. And when that impairment happens, it's, uh, it literally disappears. The buying power disappears because it was never really a monetary uh, baseline unit to begin with. It was a promise that was constructed on top of the monetary baseline unit. And so when you, when yields, if they start selling off too far, that's where the concern starts to get is, is, Hey, people's promises are breaking down. And that one person's promise is another person's asset on a different balance sheet. And then it, you get into the uh, contagion part of the cycle and we're, we're not in the contagion part yet, but I think uh, if we can, if we start getting uh, CPI prints of 10 or 11 or 12%, and you got all these guys sitting on uh, on 2.3% 10-year treasury yields, uh, now you're into like a 10% negative spread. Uh, things really start to, to sell off quickly, and it, and it starts to turn into a panic. And so I, I'm very curious. I think, I think there's going to be a, a enormous interest in the next CPI print because I think people are expecting probably a very high number and we're already, I mean, we're at 7.98% right, right now. And that's what they're telling you. Um, boy, it's going to get, it's going to get interesting if those numbers start hitting double digits. I'm also curious if you think that this issue gets exacerbated when people are selling off and not necessarily going back into the same currency or the same, as you said earlier, the ruler or marker that we use, and instead of going into a different currency altogether, does it get exacerbated by that? I make the argument that you don't need the central banks to really print all that much more. The printing's already taken place. It's already in the market. It's just been jammed, packed into, into the fixed income market. And that's why you saw yields get to zero. They went negative and to the tune of like, uh, and, the, and these are in nominal terms, right? This isn't in the real terms. The real terms, everything's negative, but everything got so compressed into the fixed income. So as the supply, as you've distorted the ruler so much, that's why you start to see supply chains break down initially. And then it starts to turn into what we're seeing right now, which is, countries taking up arms because they're so upset with the circumstances of what they've been served. And I mean, I don't want to uh, say that that's the whole reason why Putin's acting. I think there's, there's also a fact that some, some world leaders are crazy and, and have no, uh, have no appreciation for, for human life. And so you add those two mixtures together and boy, oh boy, you get, you get the, the, Things we're seeing, the terrible atrocities that we're seeing in the world today. 
And so then you have an, an acceleration of that breakdown in the supply chains. And so that's the thing you can't print. You can't print a supply chain at that point. That's where the inflation has to start showing up because you have distorted price signals in the cost of capital so much that everything starts to unwind and nobody start, nobody's trusting anybody. And I'm not getting that part. Well, I'm going to start hoarding parts because I don't know what tomorrow brings. And you have a breakdown in trust and reliability and truth. You know, we've heard every every aspect of the supply chain getting logged up, backed up, some issues in each different industry as well. Is there, I think, a commodity in particular that you are paying close attention to that's going to exacerbate this that's not oil? Everyone, everyone already is well aware of oil being at all-time highs, but is there a different commodity in particular that you're nervous about? I have a chart. I made a chart on TradingView a while back. Um, and what I what I did, my thinking on the commodity space was what's what's the largest market cap commodities in the world? And uh, let me plot them all on one chart and just kind of look at the change in the in in the percent change for all of them kind of collectively. Um, it's not a bad chart, but you know, so I'm uh, I'm looking at a whole host of things, but it you know, anybody can go and do a Google like top 10 uh, commodity market cap uh, based on market cap. And I'm looking at that. And when I'm looking at that chart, everything is blowing out. Everything is going up. I think the only thing that's not going up is rolled, rolled steel is like the only thing that's flat and maybe even down a little bit. Um, but everything else is, is, is really kind of up and it's up a lot. If you look at the year to date, I don't have the, hold on here. I'm going to see if I can get my chart pulled up. Um, when you look at the year to date on this, I want to say everything's up double digits year to date. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's wild. I'm not, I'm not paying anything. I am paying particular attention to oil, but you said I can't answer that one. So <laughs> everyone's paying attention to oil. I, I will, I will give you my answer, which is wheat, but I'm not original. I'm stealing this from David Friedberg uh, from the all in podcast last week, where they talked about how we're in planting season for wheat. And that provides mm -hmm. roughly 12% of the calories for the entire world. Mm -hmm. um, that coupled with the fact that all the fertilizer different fertilizer components come out of the Russia, Ukraine area. Um, genuinely concerned about in the next 90 days, if things do not resolve and we do not get back up and running, uh, I think we are going to see some very scary things as far as food prices go. We, we haven't even started to see the actual effects of this these gas prices in the grocery store. I saw a couple of things circulating online, different truck drivers showing how much it's costing them to uh, fill up their gas tanks, to deliver milk, deliver groceries, whatever they're delivering. Um, to your point, while CPI, they, they're telling us is 7.8, the PPI is already at, 10, at over 10%. I mean, I think you would, would agree that, yes, CPI is going to creep up and catch up to PPI. Do you think the Fed, as of right now, is doing enough to, to combat this? Not even close. But but they're in a no win situation, and I'm not trying to defend them. They're they're in a no win situation uh, because if they if they go at this too aggressively, they're just going to immediately throw it. Uh, it'd almost be like somebody's drowning in the water, and and you're going over there, and you, you know the meme when they're kind of giving them the high five. Instead of giving them the high five, you'd be dunking their head under the water more aggressively. Is really kind of what. Aggressively tightening is going to do because the market's already taking care of a lot of that just through the inflation. 
the market's going to sell off, the fixed income market's trying to sell off to those, those inflation prints. And so you have a natural tightening that's, that's automatically happening, uh, whether they're tightening the federal funds rate or not. Like the rest of the yield curve, which is where a majority of that 300 billion uh, number comes from, is in the rest of the yield curve. It's the overnight money is just a very small portion of that overall $300 trillion number. So the rest of the yield curve is already doing all that work for them. Um, could they, you know, raise rates? Would it, would it make them look like they still have control? I would argue optically it would make them look like they have maybe more control, but I think at this point, nobody believes that bluff <laughs> at all. Um, one other highlight that I have on why oil is just so important and you hit on it a little bit is um, think about it. You, if you're farming wheat, you still have to put the fuel in your tractor. You still have like all of these energy expenses to get it to where it needs to go. Um, and so all of that is baked in and it's an enormous portion of the price tag that people see the top line price tag of what they see in the supermarket or whatever it is that they're buying is energy. It's just energy to get it there and to, to manufacture it and harvest it and, and whatnot. So, uh, you know, those energy prices go up. I think I saw somebody, if you're running a tractor on a farm and it costs $300, now it's costing you a thousand dollars to do that per day. I'm curious. And I, I presented this question to Dylan LeClaire and Sam rule over here on our deep dive team. Uh, the yield curve had already suggested a 25 basis point hike last week. The markets reacted positively to this expected hike. At a certain point, it almost feels like the Fed is just sort of a, a figurehead as the fall guy, if you will. And if they were ultimately removed, I mean, you don't get certain policies like flooding the money with buying out junk bonds. You're not bailing out any sort of corporations other than when Congress wants to actually do that type of stuff. And you're allowing the market to a degree to operate like a free market. Um, what effect do you think could happen positive or negative if the Fed was ultimately eliminated and these rates were actually dictated by market decisions rather than individual people? I would tell you today, everything minus the federal funds rate is being determined, I think, mostly by the market. The market is, this is a free and open market as of right now. It, it, it goes in and out of that, <laughs> as, as depending on where you're at in time. Uh, but right now, I would tell you that they're allowing the the fixed income market minus the federal funds rate to operate free and open. Um, but this is where they're going to step in and then it's not going to be free and open. And, and if they're intermittently doing this, is it really free and open? My argument would be, no, it's not. You're manipulating it and you're causing these disturbances in, in the cost of capital. I think right now, I'm going to do a quick little measurement here. So the, the 30 years at 2.52%. I would expect it based on just the recent trend by June, you're going to be at 2.85 roughly. And once you get to 2.85% on the 30 year, you're, you're starting to break through a 40 year trend line. And I think that is, that is going to be the point where central banks are going to be forced to, to become a buyer to prevent the yields from selling off beyond that point on, on the curve. And I'm just talking about the 30 year. I would argue that all the other durations as you go down to the federal funds rate are selling off in a parallel uh, trajectory to the 30 year as of 
you know, since probably November, they're all moving out and they're all just, they're just making a run at these inflation prints. So once that sell-off gets to that, that 40 year trend line, which is yields keep coming down. Once it gets there, this I believe, and I don't know, but I suspect that uh, central banks are going to have to step in. They're going to have to do some form of yield curve control across the whole duration of the curve to prevent it from, from selling off and taking yields to a point that I don't think the market, I think there's something there that mechanically uh, prevents the market from going beyond that point where you start to break things like, like you really start to get a lot of impairment and things start breaking in the economy when they allow it to go beyond that 40 year trend line for some reason. Right. I don't know what that would be. Um, but for some reason, things start breaking down there. So I would expect that. And based on the current trajectory, these trajectories can really kind of change. So it can maybe slow down. Maybe you see it by the end of the summer, but based on the sell-off we're seeing right now, I think June, July, you start to hit this 40 year trend line. And then that's where I think, you really start to have concerns of they have to do something. They have to start manipulating that fixed income market. So do you view that as what the potential catalyst for the next leg up would look like? Potentially. Yeah. Um, because at that point, think about it. If you're, if you're pegging a yield through yield, yield curve control and you're saying it can't go beyond this, you become a buyer at any amount of selling, which means you are shoveling freshly printed fiat <laughs> into the system at any pace to match the selling pressure. And so let me just, I'll, I'll give two scenarios. Let's say we get crazy inflation. Let's say that the Ukraine situation is way worse than what we're thinking. And let's say we start getting prints of like 15% on the CPI. I think I think you're going to see the that fixed income market try to sell off at, at a pace that we just can't even comprehend. And if they're going to peg a yield at let's just say the 30 year at 2.85, um they're going to have to have <laughs> trillions and trillions of fiat to to stuff into the hands of those sellers if they try to sell off beyond that yield. Now, let's say let's say we're we maybe hit 10 or something like that on the next print or two and then it just kind of calms down and it's not as bad as we think. You're probably not going to have that wall of fiat that's needed in order to calm calm the market down. If I was going to guess which way, it's it's probably going to be somewhere in the middle of of those two scenarios that that I described. Um but if I was going to side on one versus the other, I think maybe it might actually be worse than than we're expecting and and maybe that's me being a pessimist, I don't know, but um, I try to think as clearly as possible on it, but yield curve control equals QE squared and QE squared equals just like UBI for the rich squared. Um, Cause that's what QE in my opinion is. And I think a lot of people would agree. So I think it's, it's just going to disturb and mutilate and destroy the disaster of price signals and the the cost the free and open cost of capital. I'm using quotes uh, that obviously is not there. In this scenario that we've been discussing, where does Bitcoin now fit into this equation? Is it separating, or is it still correlated with these markets? I think it. I think it could be correlated uh, with the markets if they really start to sell off and it kind of gets away from the Fed before they do the yield curve control. I think you could see Bitcoin correlated to the, the overall markets in the sell-off 
because, because of the impairment, when you, if you get into heavy impairment, you're removing units from the system, which causes everything to go down for the most part, assuming the sell-off is kind of homogeneous to like what we've seen historically. When you start getting into them stepping in and providing that backstop of just liquidity, I think that's where you really see this distinct uh, separation in, in it's not correlated to the rest of uh, fixed income for sure. <laughs> um, but even equities at that point, it really starts to, even if it would be correlated, let's say it is correlated to, to equities, the, the difference in the move is going to be much more profound than probably what we've seen historically. If it, if equities are up 1% and Bitcoin's up 4%, maybe you go from, uh, and that'd be a four to one ratio, right? Maybe it turns into like a six to one ratio or a seven to one ratio. And, and maybe it's still somewhat correlated. I don't know. I think correlation can get a little confusing for people when they say that term, because when they say correlated, I think a lot of people think that it's correlated at a one-to-one -one ratio to the move. And that's not how correlations work. Um, there, there's a ratio there that their correlation is, is also to be considered. And I think that's what starts to change is maybe that ratio. Uh, I'm curious, and I hate to continue with the line of speculative questions, but what are some catalysts to help further that correlation and get it from where we see it now in the 90s between Bitcoin and the markets to less than 50%, like a, a big shift? I, I don't know that, that you'll ever really get away from it. And here's why is because, especially when you're talking about equity, equity uh, lacks the, uh, so when you're dealing with bonds, they're denominated in a fiat. And so that's going to have total impairment. That's going to give you the debt jubilee, right? With equities, you don't have that because the equities are not denominated in a, a fiat currency. They're denominated in a share of the company's equity. And so that performs like a sound money in a meltdown, in a currency meltdown. Um, the, in, in historical examples, gold has outperformed even equity. Because what you find in, in these types of situations is that companies uh, that are not, that don't have a competitive moat and maybe have been stood up by all the printing, what they do is they start debasing the, the number of shares that they have and start using that as a form of currency. And so the, the, the earnings power of those organizations get debased through the issuance of more stock, Right. Uh, the companies that that are positioned well from a competitive advantage standpoint in a meltdown uh, currency collapse, which there's there's businesses that will do it well in, in in certain environments. I don't care what the environment is; some will do really well in, in those types of environments. And so, for those companies, they they'll probably outperform gold. Um, I don't think any of them are going to really outperform Bitcoin through that event. But once you get to the other side of the event, then that's a whole nother discussion that I can't wait to have someday. <laughs> uh, I'll be inviting you back on so that we can continue that, that part of this conversation. Um, you know, last year, investing in actual Bitcoin miners in the public markets was a better investment for the course of 2021 than actually buying and holding Bitcoin over that course of time. We still don't have a Bitcoin ETF. We're slowly seeing a trickling of more different types of Bitcoin companies entering these public markets. Um, I unfortunately, they'll feel like some of them get corrupted. Perfect example is Coinbase. You started with pure intentions and it's frankly a, a, an altcoin app more than it is a Bitcoin app. Um, 
talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing with some of these companies entering the public markets and maybe just advice from Preston Pish of like what to not do when you actually get to that stage. I think that their incentives will get the best of them. And uh, this, and it's really hard for organizations where a lot of the control of the equity, you get into a corporate governance piece to this as well, that, that really has a huge impact on, on why you're seeing the actions. I'm going to describe why you see the actions opposed to what the actions should be. So the reason I think you see the actions is because the, the people who are actually calling the shots, who actually own the equity, isn't consolidated into a small number of, of owners. When those small number of owners become wealthy and, and have an exorbitant amount of buying power, excess buying power beyond what their lifestyle demands, it's a whole lot easier for that type of person to make decisions that are, that are much more ethical and much more focused towards the customer because they're rich and they, and they're making their, they're providing a quality product. I'm not saying this is right. I'm just trying to describe why maybe we see what we see uh, in the market. So when I look at a Coinbase, you look at their equity, it's highly decentralized amongst so many different participants. And so then it becomes a political um, game of who's in charge, who sits on the board and and the thing that they're really looking at is what's the bottom line? I don't really care how we get it. Is the number going up? I don't necessarily care too much about the mission. I just care about the mission of making money. Is when You get that environment when you have the corporate governance in a really decentralized, and I'm talking specifically about equity here, when it gets really, the, the voting rights get really decentralized. When you, see, when you have a company that has a corporate governance where the founder continues to hold a, a majority of the voting rights, Michael Saylor, perfect example. Um, they can they can be much more mission oriented and focus on what they think is good for for the user or the community or the customer than making an extra buck. Another great example was you know I'm a fan of uh, Chick Fil A, right? You talk about quality at like a restaurant like that compared to McDonald's or to so there's a private company where a majority of the ownership of that business is still held by the hands of a few. They're fabulously wealthy, right? They don't need any more yachts or whatever, and maybe they, they live a very modest life. And so then they can put flowers on the table of every person, you know, every table within their restaurant. They can have a higher quality of chicken because they're not trying to pump it into their bottom line. So I think when you see these types of actions, pay attention to the corporate governance and particularly the voting rights and, and, the, and how much is actually owned by uh, a smaller number of people. And you typically see, see their actions are much more honorable and maybe mission focused to, to provide value to the customers. And so Coinbase versus Swan or some of these other you know, exchanges that are, that are much more focused just towards Bitcoin that, um, you know, here's something that's not popular. That, that I'll say is maybe 10 years from now, 15 years from now, there, there are other protocols that are adding some type of decentralized value, maybe as an exchange or whatever. I don't know what that would be. But I think for what we know at this point in time uh, and how broke and sick traditional markets are and what this transition is moving towards, the only thing that I'm comfortable talking about in a public kind of way with, with people that are listening to what I'm saying and, and maybe making financial decisions based off this entertainment conversation that we're having right now, um, but are making, <laughs> making uh, 
decisions, I, I feel a sense of social responsibility to talk about things that I have a lot of conviction in and I have a lot of, uh, you know, confidence in that, that maybe this is moving in a certain direction. A lot of the other stuff is so speculative that I, I feel like I'm being dishonest by even talking about like all the risk and all the things that could go wrong in these other areas. So I just, I remove myself because there's no way I can act, actually have real technical competence in, in how complex these things are and have it in, in a public kind of way. If I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the way I'm kind of absorbing what you're saying is it almost sounds like if if they can avoid going public and being corrupted by all of the money that gets thrown at you as a result, you're able to stay true to the original mission of what the founders wanted to accomplish. And that's sort of at, at the core of Bitcoin. That's exactly what Satoshi did. He removed he or she or they removed themselves from Bitcoin to keep it as pure as that. Um, I am a little curious of what are the types of companies that are Bitcoin focused that excite you right now? I'm very excited about, I'm, this is going to sound a little cop out and, and almost like I'm not doing a lot of uh, analysis, but like, I really like Strike. I love Jack Maulers. Um, I like Blockstream. I think that they are very focused on Bitcoin. I, I think that they have good uh, quality focus. And I think Adam Back, um, has with with his liquid and he's very open it's federated right it's it's not decentralized i mean it's decentralized but he's very up and, and honest and, and forthright with the idea that um it's not anything remotely as decentralized as bitcoin and if you use it sure if you think there's risk there that the federation has has issues well you know He's, he's just going to allow people to kind of make those arguments because it's not something that he's trying to make it appear like it's something that, that's not. And so as they're issuing tokens on top of that, on top of liquid and things like that, they are coordinating with securities laws, right? You're not going to find an issuance on there that's, that's not doing things that are equity-like without going through them. They're doing it through Europe. They're not doing it through the U.S., but I just find that their, their whole approach to be very forthright, honest, um, and kind of moving in the direction that I see a lot of this going. Now, that doesn't mean that some of these other protocols might not get enough momentum behind them uh, on the other side of this. And who, who knows what <laughs> this, this could go in a whole bunch of directions. But one thing I feel like I know for sure, and I'll, I'll give you one other, I, I like Swan. I think that they have a very sound mission. And, and you know, Corey and I have had, uh, differences in, in how we view certain things in, in the market. But one thing I can say about Corey that I really do admire is he stands by what he believes to be true. And he's, and it's, and it's of an ethical framework that he wants what's best for his customer. And I really admire that about him. And I admire that about the, the people at, at Swan. Um, so there's three, there's three companies that, that I obviously, um, look at and, and think that are, are doing the right things in the space. Big, big fan of all of those companies. And I definitely think uh, they have the right intention and mission in mind. Uh, one company though, that I'd love to ask you about, and I don't mean to politicize what was said by him. Um, the CEO of Kraken very loudly made comments when he was approached two separate times, both by first by the Canadian government and then by governments all around the world in regards to Ukraine and Russia, asking them to shut down access to 
the wallets and Bitcoin. Uh, and he flatly refused, staying true to what the whole core concept of Bitcoin is. Um, however, he also made a caveat saying, at a certain point, I can't stop. At a certain point, I have to give in to what these government regulations are. Um, talk to me a little bit about what are the government regulations that make you nervous? And what are some things that you're hopeful that governments both here in America and around the world will do to help Bitcoin prosper? So huge props to Jesse Powell. Um, I was very impressed by you know him coming out and saying that. When we look at when we look at a company, you know, we were talking about Coinbase earlier, and we look at Kraken, and uh, Kraken has a ton of of tokens that they sell on their platform. Right? There's another example where I don't know, I, I truly don't know how much Jesse of the equity Jesse's been able to retain, and what that board structure looks like. What you got to remember when a company like that is growing. Sometimes they have to take on capital. And when you take on capital, you bring new owners into the fold and your voting rights get diminished and uh, you're, still, you're still in charge, but there's a whole lot more opinions and uh, that kind of get thrown into the mix. And I'm not trying to justify exchanges that are doing those types of things. I'm just trying to explain to people that maybe aren't intimately familiar with how corporate governance works, why you see this evolution and, and why things kind of move in, in that direction for some companies, depending on you know how decentralized that that, that becomes. Um, to your question, I think that uh, I obviously want to see competition. I want to see free and open markets. I want to see uh, governments actually uh, allow capitalism because I think there there's there's huge confusion today where people think that capitalism is binary like oh this is this is a capitalistic country right in order for you to in my opinion to truly have a capitalistic country you have to have just free and open markets and free and open cost of capital that's not being manipulated right period we don't have that so whatever decisions are being made by politicians First and foremost, they have to, they can't make decisions from a place of fear. Fear of chaos and disorder is why you're seeing them step into the markets and try to control what, in my opinion, should be the uncontrollable, right? That, that fear is driving those decisions. You have to have the faith in, in the system to take your hands off the controls and let the ship write itself, right? You have to allow this, these free and open markets to allow price signals to become free and open in order to fix supply chains. That's how you fix supply chains. You take your hands off the controls and you allow the system to naturally occur. And you know what? If the prices blow out for nickel and short sellers blow up, you shouldn't be able to step into the exchange and literally reverse all the trades for the day and say, hey, I like that guy a lot. Uh, those trades didn't happen. Surprise. That's where we're at. And boy, it is it is crazy to think that, that those types of activities are happening right now. So any type of policy that manipulates anything involved in free and open markets, I'm against it. I'm going to get scolded because I continue to go into the markets with you, but I don't care. No, no, no. I love it. I I'm curious, like I, I very loudly call 
the stock market, the legalized casino here in America. You have eight different ways you can trade the NASDAQ. You have God knows how many ways you can trade just an individual stock alone. You talk, you touched on something that triggered this thought in my mind, but last year, very famously, we had the meme stock craze and, and GameStop and AMC and everything. And yet those markets were continuously getting manipulated and shut down. How do we stop that? How do we fix the public markets? Because it, while you say, while you have said during this conversation that you do think they are free, clear, and open, I frankly disagree. I think they are very manipulated both by government officials as well as the individuals that own stocks and play around with them. They'll issue new shares when they see fit or split it when they want to. How do we fix that market? You're not going to like this answer. (laughs) Uh, I think it's pain. I think it's pain. I mean, it's almost like uh, at this point, you've got a kid in the house and the kid knows that they shouldn't be doing something because they've been told that you should have free and open markets. You can read it in any type of economics book. You need free and open markets to have proper price signals, right? Everybody knows that. But uh, cognitively on a, on a macro level, like our collective consciousness is that, well, you just got to manipulate the market. You're seeing it with politicians. Well, we should just print some money and hand it out to this group or that group, or um, we should do this to, so, manipulation of the currency, turning, turning the fiat currency into a weapon is, is the common, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's become institutionalized into the consciousness as normal and actually desirable. So how, how does that get fixed? I think it gets fixed through pain. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I don't want to sound like a jerk when I say I think Bitcoin's going to supply it for a whole lot of people. Is that pain going to be more felt by those individuals that have been benefiting from this? Or is yes. it felt? okay? Yes. Okay. And 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 what's going to be interesting is you're going to have think about it. All these people that are at the top and the quote unquote elites that hold all this buying power, the thing they are scared of, the fear that they have is that order is breaking down. That's why they're acting the way that they're acting. I, I like to think that their intentions actually are pure intentions, but they're looking at it for the greater good that we have to keep things in order. And it, everything is, is trending in a direction of disorder. And so they're acting out of fear. And that fear is, I have to control. This is the classic, you know, I've got a 16-year-old or 17-year-old in the house and they're not doing what I like. So I need to control what they're doing even more. And the reason that the, that the child is acting that way in the first place is because maybe the rules are a little too tight around the house and, and they're, they're wanting that chaos and they're wanting to break away from the order that's being enforced upon them. And so the parent responds by, by enforcing even further order, which then creates the dramatic painful event for all parties involved. But the beneficiary in this, in this scenario with Bitcoin, think about it, all that buying power is wrapped up into the hands of the few at the top. And most of it is wrapped around interest rates at nothing. So your, your market capitalization rates are extremely high because those interest rates are low, or it's just in debt itself. And that's going to be completely impaired. So they're going to, and it's, it's very relative, but their relative payment 
for the debt jubilee is going to be massively more than the person who benefited because they were the borrower. They weren't the lender. They were the borrower. They're going to benefit from those reduced relative to the new currency type payments. They're going to, they're going to feel a sense of relief at a certain point in that process, in that, in that transition. I'm curious your thoughts. And this was actually sent to me. Uh, this question was sent to me while we've been having this conversation. Um, what is the difference between someone or businesses or countries that have been benefiting from being close to the money printer versus Michael Saylor or some of these whales who have just a nice big chunk of Bitcoin sitting on off on the sidelines or in whatever wallet they're storing it in? Do we not recreate a certain part of the system and some of the faults that we have now? I think you're going to have, you know, when you flip this, it's like a, it's like a light switch, right? You, you switch it to the other side. Right now you have a total uh, misalignment and polarization of buying power and wealth into the hands of a few. I think when you flip the switch to this new system, you're going to have a very similar makeup of polarization of wealth into the hands of a few. Um, but the, the decision-making, the critical thinking, the intentions that it was flipped into are literally the polar opposite. And most importantly, you're going to have that um, redistribution of all that wealth is going to pour out of those individuals um, as opposed to consolidate into them. And, and so let me explain how that would happen. So how that happens is through the reaccumulation of equity. And so you're going to get to a point where the, the Michael Saylors of the, of the world are going to be looking at the opportunity cost that they're foregoing by not owning a, a uh, cash generating equity uh, asset as opposed to uh, the new form of money that's already appreciated to its market cap, right? And so that's when that's when you're going to have those people that are sitting on that equity are going to be wanting to get rid of it in order to put this new currency into their hands so that they can, you know, do whatever. And that's how a lot of it is going to get circulated and, and pushed out of those people's hands is actually through the equity markets, through the revaluation of the equity markets, through new capitalization rates, which are going to be at way higher yields than 0%. And that's, I think that that idea is, is extremely hard for anybody that's not in finance or doesn't understand financial valuation. That's going to be really hard for, I think, a lot of people to kind of wrap their head around or, or even believe for that matter. And, and this is a theory I have. I don't even know that it's valid, right? Oh, totally. I mean, it's, it's similar to what you had brought up earlier about this idea that if you have this 30-year loan and it's denominated in fiat, at a certain point, the value of Bitcoin versus this fiat currency is going to grow in theory, so much that it's going to be a small fraction of this original Bitcoin holding, no different than some of the conversations that Michael Saylor has had about the growth prospects and how it's equivalent to owning real estate in Manhattan early on. Um, I'd love your thoughts on sort of this analogy. We hear a lot. Bitcoin is digital gold. Bitcoin is digital real estate. What do you, Preston Page, consider Bitcoin to really be most similar to? The dollar. <laughs> but but uh, non-confiscatable, uh, permissionless, uh, immediately settling, um, 
a fixed supply like gold, unlike the dollar. So I would say a combination of it's a hybrid of like the dollar and the and gold mixed together um, with immediate clearance being able to be zapped anywhere on the planet instantaneously. So this is like nothing we have ever seen in our lifetimes in the planet. Like it's just, it is, um, it might be one of the biggest inventions in, in the last two millennia. Would you prefer to see a world where individuals are the primary holders of Bitcoin, or would you prefer to see states having some sort of a Bitcoin standard and still operating as our financial intermediary isn't the right word, but operating in the financial markets or having a hand in them? I like the idea of decentralizing the measurement of, of energy and uh, labor down into the smallest unit possible. So I look at it like, how does your body, how does the human body solve that problem? The human body solves the energy problem at the mitochondrial level. And what's really fascinating about your body is like your DNA is different than your mitochondria's DNA. That is a different, that is a different living being that, that, that nests itself inside your body. And you got, uh, I think, I don't, well, what's the number of mitochondria? You got billions of them in your body, right? And they're all their own little unique power plant. And they're all producing that ATP that your body uses as the currency, the energy currency in your body. And so how does nature solve it? Well, nature solves it in, in across any living organism that's, that's a complex organism. Um, it solves it by, by uh, putting it into a micro power plant called mitochondria. And so I see Bitcoin performing in a very similar way. And I think that it's important for it to continue to stay that way. And that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm such a huge fan of Bitcoin versus all the other protocols is because by, a, by you being able to run a full node, you're effectively a mitochondria in, in the system in order to enforce that consensus protocol of what ATP should be. Um, and so I, I guess I, I get my cueing from nature and I think that um, I would look at it in a similar light. I didn't know you were such a poet, Preston. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'll take it. I'm not, but I'll take that. Um, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot. I've never gotten an answer that I've found sufficient. Uh, I, I'm coming to you because I admire your investing prowess and the way you look into the future a little bit. Uh, at a certain point, the block rewards, I think in about 12 years, the block reward is going to be less than a whole Bitcoin and it will continue to diminish over time. Right now, it is very, very profitable to be a miner. But at a certain point, it's not going to be as profitable. Yes, Bitcoin will continue to grow in price and value. Its use cases will continue to grow as well. Where is a threshold or what is a breaking point in the mining industry that you're, you're maybe moder uh, monitoring or paying attention to? Well, I think uh, I kind of subscribe to this idea that you're going to have, uh, it was a catchy uh, way to describe the melt up in, in the Bitcoin price. Like you're going to have like this, 1920s Germany chart where like gold blows out, but you're going to have that with Bitcoin where it's going up in a, in this, in this logarithmic chart, right. That we're all very accustomed to in the price action, but then it's going to just like hockey stick curve, like straight up. And that's going to be the meltdown of fiat. I subscribe to that idea. I think that that's how this is going to go down. I think that, that when something like that would, would take place, if you've got a miner, like you are just going to murder it through that 
from, from now to that transition point. Once it, once it does that, and you have enough, and I think this is important, you have enough uh, hardware come online to eat away at the, those margins, and it gets so competitive because of the hash rate continuing to increase because so much uh, hash rates coming online. Um, you're going to have those margins continue to get pinched um, once you're in a post-hyper-Bitcoinized world. I, I think that starts to get pinched because the market cap isn't growing at that point. Your market cap relative to all the goods and all the equity in the world starts to flatline. And I, I guess the way I would, could, could kind of make this really understandable for people is, let's say you go to the store and you buy a candy bar for 50 sats. If you come back in, in three years from now, the candy bar is still 50 sats. Right. Or maybe it's maybe it's slightly, maybe it's 49 sats or something like that. That would probably probably be a bad scenario, like initially after hyper Bitcoinization, maybe a hundred years from now or 50 years from now, you might see that scenario. Uh, to your question, you're going to have this this uh uh season of massive gains for miners that will then start to contract and then it's going to come to a very threshold like super competitive uber competitive market and you're going to see a significant amount of those miners especially for old rigs just literally disappear and you're going to see a decrement in the hash rate that's probably going to kind of reach some type of steady state now what that looks like and um kind of comes to a homeostasis in a post hyper Bitcoinized world. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. I don't, I don't even know that if that's a, a situation that we should be concerned with. I like to think that there's going to be still a lot of demand for on-chain layer one transactions, almost like fed fed wire. Right. I think that you have, you already have the business case of why that's needed in the world today. And I think that a lot of that will probably continue to, to present a substantial business proposition for miners in the future is, is what I'm, and maybe that's the optimist in me coming out, but uh, I think that you're still going to have a lot of demand for that, for layer one. Shout out to my fearless co-host who wasn't able to join, but he DM'd me. I think you were talking about the stock to FOMO. FOMO, that is, that's it. Okay. That is it. That is it. Thank you, Chris, for yet again, saving my ass and saving the day. Uh, I hope your flight <laughs> takes off soon, man. Um, I, I'm curious though, because while layer one will always be necessary, miners are going to have a huge place and role, even in the, the post, uh, all, all 21 million Bitcoin being mined, there's still going to be a necessary component and the, the, uh, not the exchange rate, the fees incorporated with sending and transacting Bitcoins will be their primary source of revenue. Uh, at what point though, does energy cost have to go into this equation now, especially, but even more so in that future scenario? Well, yeah, that's, that's what's going to really drive it. And, and if there's one thing that I would say that I think that this is further out there for it to kind of start reaching, uh, a, a balancing or a homeostasis kind of thing, um, you're going to have to have uh, stability in the markets to even understand what a stable energy cost would be in a, in a post-hyper-Bitcoinized world. So um, I, I think your hash rate is just going to take it, take it there. I think that anybody that's, that's going out there and finding what we would describe as $0.05 cent per kilowatt hour or $0.04 cent per kilowatt hour type energy that they can harness 
um, whatever that would be in the future. Hey, maybe it's five, five sat uh, <laughs> per kilowatt hour in the future. The math might actually support that uh, conversion. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to sit down and make sure that that's right. But um, I, I think you're going to probably find something similar to that. Unless, And the only thing that would disrupt that is if we move to some type of uh, quantum leap in uh, energy production that that we're not using today, like some type of technological revolution in, in energy production. A company like ExxonMobil today announcing that they're going to start mining Bitcoin off their natural gas excess. Uh, is this a net positive for Exxon or is this a net positive for Bitcoin or both? Both. You know, Harry Suttick told me uh, probably a year ago, he's like, I really think we're going to start to see either miners are going to buy, start buying up energy companies or the other way around. But uh, everything that I'm looking at is suggesting that's the trend that, that's on the horizon here. And so when I saw that announcement today, I thought of Harry and how accurate he was a year ago when he told me that. And I just kind of had a smirk and then, I mean, come on, it's Exxon Mobil. Are you, are you kidding me? Like, uh, I can't imagine where this is going. This is, this is crazy. Like if you're not bullish long-term on this stuff, like I, I, you got, you got your head in the sand, man. Instinctively made this foolish decision of buying into the news. I thankfully sat on my hands for a moment before I could finish today's show. And then when I looked at the charts, the charts just looked so ugly for ExxonMobil that I, I kind of came to the conclusion that while I will take a long position at some point, I think in the short and immediate term, uh, there is going to be some sort of downside because you, I just think with the risk of any decision around oil affecting the long, uh, the current price of ExxonMobil, it can just be a nice little shakeout for retail guys like myself trying to get in and, and figure out sort of the next leg up. Um, I want to ask this as sort of the winding down of this conversation. What are you reading right now? I've read so many of the books that you have talked about on your show. I can use a new <laughs> one for my reading list. So uh, I'm working on, and uh, none of the three are Bitcoin books. Uh, I'm, I'm almost done with deep nutrition. I'm, uh, I just recently finished the book red handed and, um, kind of like a third of the way through Putin's people right now. Wow. Love, love that. Thank you for the recommendations as always, Preston. Yeah. My final question for you is, is really, really simple. What are you most excited to see in Miami in two weeks? <laughs> Uh, my wife's coming with me down there and I'm just kind of excited to, to spend some time with her where my, my parents are going to watch the kids and her and I are just going to go have a fun time and um, just, you know, go down to Miami and, and enjoy the, um, the beautiful weather. And uh, I'm just looking forward to just spend time one-on-one. So, uh, and obviously the whole community and, and folks that uh, I've gotten to know through the years. The, and, and I just want to, publicly thank Bitcoin Magnet. You guys have always just been so nice. Last year was such a blast. Like uh, you guys just take care of, of me in that setting. And I, I've just had a blast and I just really want to thank you guys personally. It's, it's always been so much fun. We're excited to have you again this year. We're excited to get to do a lot more stuff with you this year as well. Um, I, I could say personally, last year, you were like, the, the event that I circled was getting to hear you talk. Uh, and I'm 
very, very floored that I was able to have this conversation with you for an hour and a half. I don't want to take any more of your time. I could talk your ear off probably for days on end, Preston. Um, for those of us listening on Twitter, they obviously know uh, your Twitter. Fo- they follow you on Twitter. If they don't, what are you doing over there? Uh, where else uh, can people be learning about you or listening to your conversations? Yeah, so uh, I'm active on Twitter. Enjoy the the man. I can't tell you how much I've learned by just being on Twitter. I mean, you talk about the ultimate tool. There's a person out there that knows ten times more than you on pretty much any topic, and it's just so much fun learning from folks. So I'm I'm very active on Twitter, and I really enjoy uh, interacting with folks. And then I have a podcast every Wednesday that comes out on our We Study Billionaires uh, feed. That's just Bitcoin specific that, that I host. And that comes out every, every, uh, it really comes out every Tuesday night, but we, we say it's Wednesday morning. Awesome. Preston, thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to getting to meet you in person in a couple of weeks. Thank you everyone on the Twitter spaces who came and joined our conversation and listened in. Um, we'll be releasing the video version of this interview in a, in a, ahead of the conference. So in a week and a half, roughly, um, Preston, I don't know if you have any last words, but I'll let you have the mic. No, all I want to do is just say thanks and uh, hodl on, baby, hodl on. It's it's a good time to be bullish and don't watch the price action too closely because uh, long term, all the fundamentals just keep getting better by the day. So thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate this.